Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be learning about the feature film directorial debut from Ridley Scott, 1977's The Duelists. To help us separate fact from fiction, I'm excited to once again be joined by a historian and professor at Louisiana State University, Alexander Mika Beritza. He came onto the show a little while back to chat about the movie Waterloo, and he's also written numerous books about the Napoleonic era, including his latest, which is called The Napoleonic Wars, A Global History. Before we connect with Alexander, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. There was once a duel where a gentleman shot his adversary for mistaking anchovies for capers. Number two, it wasn't very common for soldiers to advance through the ranks of Napoleon's army as much as we see happen to the two main characters in the movie. Number three, the primary reason for most duels in the Napoleonic era was to resolve a matter of honor. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to chat with Alexander Mika Beritza about the historical accuracy of The Duelists. Let's start by setting up the who. The two main characters that we see throughout the movie are Gabrielle Ferreau and Armand Dubert, who are both lieutenants in Napoleon's army. Were they real people? Kind of. <laughs> For his uh, directorial debut, uh, Ridley Scott chose to direct a screenplay adapted from the 1907 novella by the famous author, um, Joseph Conrad. By the way, the novel uh, was published as The Duel in Britain, but it was titled The Point of Honor in the United States. And you can still find the you know, first editions of it in, in uh, used bookstores. And Conrad's story was supposedly inspired by these real duels, although he clearly took liberties with the facts. And the story was about the duel between two officers of Napoleonic army, the historical individuals of Pierre Dumont uh, de Tang and François Fournier-Sarlevese, who became Hubert and Ferro in, in the movie. And both of them are very colorful and rather interesting individuals. Dupont was born in Chabanais, in, in Charente, in Western France, in 1765. Like many of his generation, he first saw his action, uh, you know, first military action during the French Revolutionary Wars. In fact, he fought at the Battle of Valmy, a really important battle of, of this period. Then he served in the Rhineland. And by 1797, he's already a general, so he would have been only 32 years old and, uh, and a general, widely respected for his uh, martial abilities. Uh, he supported Napoleon uh, in 1799 when that general seized power and took part, and, and then he took part in Napoleonic campaigns. Always distinguishing himself. I mean, he, this guy was quite successful and quite capable man, fought at Marengo, uh, fought at uh, Albeck, where he, he did the really a remarkable defense with barely 5,000 men. He was able to stop an Austrian army that was five times larger. And then he earned accolades for uh, his exploits at Ulm, Krems, Friedland, and so on and so on. And with such a stellar record, 
he had much to expect from the future, uh, maybe even Marshal's baton, right? As Napoleon famously says, every soldier, right, in my army carries Marshal's baton. And if anyone could carry it, it probably uh, Dupont was one of them. But it all changed in 1808. Napoleon sent Dupont to Spain with a motley crew of, uh, of these provisional battalions, new, new recruits, Swiss troops that were impressed into service, so no one was <laughs> particularly excited about fighting. And his task was to secure the southern region of, of Spain. And after initial successes, he however, found himself this, surrounded by this larger Spanish army. And in the remarkable decision that affected his entire life, Dupont decided to surrender with some 18,000 men at Bailen. And the news of this French defeat, and you know, worse than this, they surrender, right? That shocked Europe. Uh, Napoleon is enraged. Dupont is sent to court-martial. He's deprived of his rank and his title, cashiered, and then sent to a military installation in to, to be imprisoned there for the rest of the Napoleonic Wars. Now, Fournier Sarlovese, his counterpart, is one of the most dashing and colorful personalities in the French army. He's much younger than Dupont. He's born in 1773 in the small town of Sarlat in Dordogne region. And he, again, like Dupont, enlisted during the French Revolutionary Wars, fought like Dupont in many of the same areas where Dupont was. But he had this problem with subordination, constantly getting into trouble for talking back to the officers. He famously was, uh, you know, uh, challenging the authority of, of seniors. And he was, an, I mean, we, we still have a, a portrait of him. He's of average height, blue eyes, his thin mustache, a well-built upper body and a slim waist, kind of a, a dashing figure. But it is his character that really grabs you because it's a full of contrast. He is a, a womanizer uh, who is known for his fine singing voice, but he's also this fierce warrior that challenges anyone for a, a, sli or a slight insult, or at least the perception of insult. <laughs> and he expressed himself openly always and very bluntly, never shying away from uh, publicly criticizing his superiors, even Napoleon, whom he accused of uh, betraying Republican ideals on more than one occasion. In fact, uh, in 1802, Napoleon's minister of police famously writes that uh, this general, famous for his, and this is a quote, famous for his dexterity as a good shot, uh, has publicly stated that he could shoot and kill Bonaparte <laughs> from a distance of 50 paces. And so he was thrown in jails, in and out, but as a great officer, at least a brave officer, he also was allowed to continue to serve, and he made steadily made the ranks. Uh, by 1807, he's a baron, and so here you see Napoleon on kind of knowing that this guy's a jackass and a dangerous jackass, but also valuing him for his skills and promoting him. So by 1807, he's a baron. By 1813, he's actually count of the empire. Ultimately, uh, Fournier dies in 1827. Now, what makes Fournier interesting also is that he's this notorious duelist who was always ready to accept the challenge, and that creates this aura around him, an aura of this masculinity, but also this very you know, trigger-happy kind of man. And that then creates this story of this long duel and this story, uh, you know, as I was tracing, as part of my research was trying to trace it, I could trace it to mid-19th century. 
And you can see it, for example, in publications like Charles Dickens's Household Words or Harper's uh, New Monthly Magazine or Lippincott's Magazine. I think one of the crucial role in crafting this story was played by a French writer, Emile Colombet, who uh, published a popular history of dueling. And in that book, he described various incidents and stories, but he devotes a significant chunk of his book uh, you know, uh, to the story of this Fournier and Dupont. And the way Colombet describes it is that uh, the duel starts in 1794, so the early French revolutionary story, and he describes this as you know this kind of sensationalized headline: "The duel la- lasted 19 years." All right, he <laughs> cannot but grab your attention, right? <laughs> and so uh, it starts in 1794 and then ends in 1813. And the story that Columbay portray- describes is essentially the one that we see in the movie. Columbay even goes as far as uh, producing this alleged agreement that the two men made on how to fight the duel, and, and the movie shows that. And I think Conrad uh, would have encountered this story in one of these periodicals. Probably he read Colombe's work because he was traveling in France right before writing this story in early 1900s. And then he then crafted this wonderful novel, which then inspired the movie. So no contemporary source acknowledges the story's veracity, and it is only in hindsight that people then wrote about this story. Well, you mentioned the the timeline there of where that was, and according to the movie, it starts in the year 1800 in Strasbourg, but kind of the, the nature of the movie, and because it's focusing on these two characters, it doesn't really explain a lot of the bigger picture of what's going on. Can you fill in some of the overall historical context of what was going on for Napoleon and his army at that time? I think that's what actually I love about this movie is that it is a war movie, but without large-scale right engagement. It focuses on this, like a micro history, on the experience of these two men. And you're right that oftentimes it doesn't provide you with a historical context because you know the, you you follow the exploits of these two men, and through them, right, you you then see the story of Napoleonic wars. Well, 1800 is an important year uh, for Napoleon, but for Europe as a whole. Your listeners probably remember that Napoleon came to power in November of 1799 through a coup, a military uh, takeover of power in, the, in France. And that meant that in 1800, his position is still not insured, right? He's just months into the power. His authority is far from being consolidated. And most crucially, he still has to fight what we now call the War of the Second Coalition that pitted France against a, a new array of, of European powers, uh, the most important of which was Austria, at least in 1800. And that summer in 1800, the summer of 1800, Napoleon led the second invasion of Italy and in mid-June defeated the Austrians at this famous Battle of Marengo. But Napoleon's victory overshadows the fact that it didn't end the war or that Italy was not actually the only theater of war. In fact, and even larger army was a uh, French army was deployed in the Rhineland, right in the northern France on the border with Germany, and it was commanded by this talented French general uh, Jean Victor Moreau, who also fought the Austrians from April to July of 1800. So, if we follow this movie's timeline, then Ferro and uh, and Hubert would have been in Moreau's army, 
And the French indeed defeat the Austrians uh, at Stockach, Mesker, Hochstadt, different battles. And then in July, there is an armistice. And uh, the armistice allows the armies to rest, and it continues through the rest of the summer and most of the fall. And it is only in November that the hostilities will be resumed. And then Moreau seizes the initiative, outmaneuvers the Austrians, and defeats them at Hohenlinden, this huge battle which forced the Austrians to sue for peace. Now, if we follow these opening right, scenes of the movie, you see the weather in the movie is kind of cold, right? You see that some of the uh, uh, the seconds of, of the duelists, right, the officers, they are wearing coats. And I think the scenery, the weather, this clothing, all implies that the beginning is this fall of 1800, maybe during the armistice between the French and the Austrians and before the war ends later that year. Yeah, that fills in a lot of extra details of what's going on. You mentioned earlier the the personality of accepting the challenges and 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 being being the duelist there. And in the movie, we see the reason why these duels start. And it seemed to me, it's okay as I was watching this, it just seemed like really that's really what's going to kick this off. <laughs> I mean, and I'll explain it real quick in case you know as you're listening, if you haven't watched the movie in a while. But basically, what happens is. Thoreau goes and he duels with the nephew of Strasbourg's mayor, and he wins that duel, but then the general orders his arrest since military men aren't allowed to duel with civilians. So Hubert goes to arrest Thoreau and insults him in the process. At least that's how he sees it, right? And so immediately, there's this first duel between Thoreau and Hubert, and, and happens to leave Thoreau injured on top of the insult that he saw. So that kicks off this, this duel that we see happening over the course of what some 15 years or so throughout the movie and it just seemed like after i saw that i was like really that's that's what's going to kick this off was that really the reason that would start all of this (laughs) yes the answer is yes (laughs) there are a lot of egos at stake now i have to say right the way uber behaves was not that particularly insulting i think the mistake that he made if it was even a mistake was to present the the letter to Ferro publicly right, at the at the reception right of that of that lady I think that what Ferro was pissed off at now granted he might have been upset even if it was done right if Uber had waited and had done it as he was walking the street but here's the thing all of this all of this can be boiled down to this notion of the point of honor which was a very very important concept in this early modern society especially in the militarized society such as you know France or in England or, or Germany. And you see that most prevalent cause for dueling was this point of honor. And then that point of honor hides the little things that were perceived as being as slights on the honor. Uh, one of my favorite books is this dueling kind of handbook that was published right at the, uh, about this time. The full title is quite uh, quite a mouthful to pronounce. It's, it's, it starts the, the only appropriate guide through all the dueling etiquette and all that and all that. But so let's call it the dueling handbook. What made this the book interesting is that it laid out essentially the the ground rules and all this, how it was done. And if we read through the second chapter of it, then you'll see that it mentions various examples of why the duels were fought. So, for example, it mentions that. Major uh, Major Dawson uh, was challenged by another officer for merely asking him to take another cup. (laughs) 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 
this is my cup, man. <laughs> Take the other one. <laughs> or the uh, Colonel Montgomery was killed in a duel over disagreement on what the dog would look like. Or uh, one contemporary observed that, and uh, in, in this little quote, I have known a challenge sent to a person for going out of the room abruptly and leaving a man of honor in the midst of conversation. <laughs> <laughs> just, just leaving the conversation. Yeah, don't you dare to cut this this conversation early. <laughs> oh, my favorite one is, is again, and some of these, of course, questions of veracity of it, but at least the contemporaries believe that was this was a good enough reason to challenge, was the popular story of a gentleman who shot his adversary in consequence of mistaking anchovies for capers. <laughs> and we could cite many examples like this. Uh, and the, by the ritual of duel, private resentments were lifted above this merely personal level of revenge. Uh, the combatants or you know, the duelist honor merged into that of a class to which both and his rival belonged and to which they were kind of making this joint obeisance, right? It, it was a corporate kind of honor that all of these members, the, because both Hubert and Ferro are kind of members of the corporate militarized caste, and they are behooven to uphold this honor. And then it, the movie shows you that, well, because it's not just about their individual honors. It also then becomes regimental honors, right? And now it's a... The honor of the entire regiment at stake, that if you back down, that your fellow comrades will, will be pissed off. And so you see the complexity of, of it. So even though it might start it, it might start over an issue that to us looks asinine and ridiculous, it, it the the larger points of honor, individual honor, group honor, corporate honor, the class honor kind of constructs, all play the role in preventing this man from backing down. You're talking about the handbook, and I wanted to ask you about this because the movie sets up some rules for the way that duels are supposed to happen. And some of those that we see, soldiers of equal rank, that's the, on that's the only types of duels that are going to be tolerated. Um, no dueling while the nation is at war, or uh, they both must agree to the weapon of the duel. And there's always, you mentioned the seconds, there's always someone there that must be besides the duel. And I'm assuming that that's, to kind of make sure that the rules are going to be followed. Uh, there's one instance where in one of the duels, I think they just grabbed some random guy who was nearby. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be soldiers or anything, right? How well does the movie do explaining the rules around duels and how they take place? I think overall it does a good job of conveying both the essence of dueling, uh, but also the, the ritualistic nature of it. The primary duty of seconds Right, so uh, to, to explain, so duel involves the primary, right, the combatants themselves, the people who have some issues of honor to resolve, and then they have seconds. Each of them must have seconds, and usually these seconds would be very well, you know, kind of carefully chosen, and you'll see in a second why. The primary duty of seconds was to guarantee fair play, uh, an equal chance for both of their men. And they did that by agreeing on specific time, place, weapons, procedure that would have been fair to both sides, and also by seeing to it that no illicit advantage was taken by one side over the other. So think about, I think the movie you know, shows where they check the weapons, right, so that the source had to be the same length. Pistols had to be given the same charge of powder. 
you know, things like sun uh, must not be in the either man's eyes, right? And the very existence of seconds implies that in earlier times, if there were no seconds, no scrutineers like them, there would have been widespread irregularities, right? So one side screwing the other. In its classic days, or in its classic sense, uh, the duel was a, a secluded kind of affair. At least it was a private affair taking place in a secluded place with few spectators. This was not something that you would show off. Now, partly this was to avoid police interference, and all governments took measures to suppress dueling. Think about the fate, you know, the, the great story of, uh, of Alexander Dumas' uh, musk- musketeers and the uh, Richelieu's restrictions on dueling, and to Napoleon himself, right, Cast, you know, castigating and, and indeed uh, persecuting people engaged in dueling, because this was a waste of life, really, a waste of resources, human resources. The governments tried to restrict it. Uh, and therefore, you know, this dueling usually took place in a secluded area to avoid police interference. But it was also kind of re- conveying you know, a reflection of a, of a code of behavior, this honor code that you don't need to have people to protect your honor, right? You just need the other guy who slighted your honor and you'll deal with him. It was an also a responsibility of the seconds to be ready, and that's an important one, uh, to be ready to testify to what happened. Both in public, when you know later on people ask you, oh, "Hey, you know, uh, Dan and Alex for the duel, what happened?" Well, if I have a, a second, he will, as a witness, be able to say, "Yes, they fought a duel, and uh, you know, uh, Dan indeed avenged the slight to show that it was honorably done." But it was also their job to uh, prepare accounts for any court proceedings that might result from the dueling. So that it's a very important. For example, it's very, that's especially important when the important individuals are involved. This brings to mind a duel that took place later on in 1854, but still a duel that involved French ambassador and American ambassador in Madrid. <laughs> the duel was taking place over a French ambassador. They were at the ball, and the French ambassador made a sarcastic remark about uh, a woman. And unfortunately for him, it was overheard. <laughs> and so he was challenged to a duel by American ambassador. And then the British ambassador was actually forced to be a, a second. And he actually drew an account to be forwarded to individual governments of what, what just happened here. Now, fortunately, not, none of the men died. The seconds, um, as agents of their principles, had the distinct kind of role of lawyers. And lawyers both negotiating the ground rules, lawyers as representing the sides, uh, lawyers as defending the honor and the perception of the duelists post-duel. So choosing them was very important process. You wouldn't just choose anybody. And that's where I think the movie just takes a little bit of a license where they just grab somebody, right? You would do it, but that will be an extreme case, right? A last resort, uh, Otherwise, you will pay attention who is your second. I can only imagine how many uh, wars might have started from duels between diplomats and ambassadors. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you this. uh, The Russian emperor, Paul, who is actually in power in 1800 when the movie starts, Paul famously sends out an appeal saying that, hey, instead of countries fighting the wars, why don't the head of states get together and slug it out? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> let the best man win 
I'm sure the heads of state didn't like that. <laughs> Send everybody else to war. We don't want to. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, in the movie, even though there are rules to dueling, we notice that not all the duels between Furo and Hubert are as civil as the others. Uh, for example, I'll point one of them out that we see in the movie. It's in 1801 in uh, Usberg. There's, I think it was the third duel, and the two are dueling in a cellar. You can t- Both of them are exhausted. They're extremely bloody, and it's the first time that it really looks like they're just out to kill each other no matter what it takes. And they might have if the soldiers that were seconds in the room uh, hadn't stepped in to stop the fight. And of course, as I was watching, I also was like, okay, well, these people are actually watching the fight the entire time. So they let them get to that point of being that bloody and exhausted. So at what point did these duels turn from what looked more like a gentleman's duel into this desire to just kill the other guy at all costs? I think it depended on the, on the men themselves. Um, in most cases, the duels would have been over with the, the first kind of draw of blood, but that's it. You've satisfied your point of honor and you exacted the revenge. But in, in other cases, indeed, you know, one side would have insisted on continuing the fight. And there, of course, then the seconds would have played an important role of interfering, of, of making sure that convincing the sides that, hey, that's it, it's resolved, you, know, you should be satisfied. But yes, I mean, there were occasions when they fought all out to death. And I think that scene, the duel in Augsburg, is quite, to me, it is quite interesting how it was done because it, it shows you the, uh, I think, the more realistic kind of side of this fight, that these guys are not just like in the old Hollywood movies, right? Elroy Flynn and all that when they're, fencing for an hour right and still still kind of agile and excited i mean a couple minutes into the fight they're already exhausted right they're swinging barely sword of the saber and you see how tired really exhausted they are and i like that uh, realistic portrayal of it but to go back to your question it all will depend on particulars of a duel and some of them were indeed the more bloodier affairs than others Overall, looking at dueling at the time, was it more common for those duels to turn into one person killing each other? Or was it more common to have that, you know, just drawing first blood and have it be more of a superficial thing? The killing was, would have been uh, a more of a, a rare occurrence. And the severe injuries or would have been a, a more common uh, outcome of, of a duel. The interesting thing about dueling is that even though in the movie it is mostly done with sabers and it's only towards the end that they use the pistols, during this period, the, the choice of weapon would have been a crucial decision to make. And I know that, you know, there are, so if you read the contemporary writings, you see that, for example, that French were considered more uh, skilled at, at the saber. And so if you are choosing to fight a French uh, officer or whoever, maybe you would not have chosen, right? If you are not. Uh, if you are Spaniard or Italian or whoever, right, you will chosen some weapon of your benefit. And then that then would have also determined to what extent the bloodness of the battle. So with a pistol, you essentially have a shot. And uh, with a shot, you potentially can kill a person, right? And certainly a lot of them would have been killed. Uh, but in most cases, you would have injured the person grievously. And with a saber, I think the the outcome could be deadlier. That makes sense. That makes sense. But you're you're talking about how it might be beneficial, like if you if you're an Italian fighting fighting a Frenchman, to not choose saber. But wouldn't they have to both agree on what weapon was used? Yes, that's right. 
So it, it would still have... Well, that would be <laughs> haggling back and forth, right? <laughs> and that was seconds. Again, seconds would have played a role in, in essentially making sure that whatever weapon is chosen is fair to all, both sides. Okay, I was going to say, because it seems like they're not getting along to begin with, and now they have to agree on this thing that they're not going to agree on. Like, <laughs> well, Yeah, but the honor, the honor thing, see? Because if you keep resisting, then my offer of saber, I'm going to question your honor again. <laughs> Oh, okay. They, they, okay. They, hey, that makes sense. That starts, starts to pull back in there. <laughs> I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up, and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four-hour drive to a state park. And... It couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. There's another point in the movie that I wanted to ask about the kind of the historical context there. And Throughout most of the movie, the fact that the two men are soldiers, it almost seems like a, a backdrop to the story of their duels. But one of the first times that we see Faro and Hubert in the army facing an enemy other than each other is in Russia in the year 1812. It's freezing cold there. Uh, the two men separate themselves from the rest of the soldiers and they go off to duel yet again. But when they do, a group of Cossacks stumble upon them and then the two duelists have to team up together to fight off uh, this group of Cossacks. Can you give some more historical context around what was going on there? The scene, as you said, is taking place in 1812. And in June of that year, late June, Napoleon leads one of the largest armies Europe has seen on this all-out invasion of Russia. And uh, the campaign it lasts only six months, and yet it is one of the greatest military catastrophes. Uh, Napoleon was able to push the Russian armies back. Um, he captures major Russian towns, including Smolensk, Moscow. But ultimately, he's unable to uh, defeat Russians in the field, in all-out battle, right? The Battle of Borodino in September, on September 7 uh, of 1812, is, uh, is indecisive. Both sides claim victory. Uh, and so Napoleon, in October, is forced to retreat. He can't simply stay there. He already stayed, spent more than a month in Moscow amidst the ruins of this burned-out city. Uh, and he realizes the peace is not coming. Russians are re- still 
willing to fight on. So he has no choice but to order the army to retreat. And as the French army retreats, the Russian army pursues it and starts essentially nibbling, you know, nibbing at its heels and attacking it. Uh, and so we see the series of important battles that take place at, at Maloyaroslavets, at Vyazma, at, at uh, Krasna, uh, on the outskirts of Smolensk. And then you see this big showdown uh, on, the, on the banks of the uh, Berezina River in November. And that's a rather famous battle uh, because here Russians had an opportunity to entrap Napoleon uh, with three armies converging, one from the east, one from the west, and one from the north, essentially capturing this army on the banks of this river maybe wiping it out, capturing Napoleon, killing him, whatever. History would have been quite different. But through a combination of a Russian own incompetence, misinformation, as well as Napoleon and his army's brilliance, the French army escapes. And so I think what you see in the movie is effectively the, the last stage of this invasion. Because until, the, until then, um, uh, the winter was not that cold. I mean, we, we imagine, right, the Russia, Napoleon's invasion in Russia is being cold almost through the entire campaign, right? <laughs> like, he went and it was cold, he came out and it was cold. But um, actually, uh, the October and November were not that cold. In fact, one of the reasons why Russians were in position of being able to entrap Napoleon on the banks of Berezina River was the thaw in November that made uh, that broke up ice on the river and it was a challenge for the French to cross the river. But it is after this event, so it takes place in late November, November 26th to 29th. So after that event, that really the winter sets in. And I think the movie shows you that more of a December period when you see this uh, blizzard and then cold and misery. And that's also the moment when the army effectively disintegrates. And that's what you see in, in this scene where there is no regiment. Right? There is no unit cohesion. This is individual soldiers trying to survive and, and fight off. And one of the books I published is, uh, the, is the eyewitness accounts from this campaign. And I think, let me uh, just give you a glimpse of what Russians saw uh, as they were attacking. Right, the, you know, the movie shows you the French side, but this is what the Russians saw. And it's a, it's a small excerpt from a Russian soldier, Rafael Zotov, who describes the following, and, and let me read it out. We marched along the wooded area. The snow was firm and shallow, so we took advantage of a clear weather to wear off the main road occasionally and travel along the edges of the forest, where we encountered dozens of frozen French corpses lying in heaps in every direction. These terrible sights had become so ordinary to us that we no longer paid any attention to them. As I was traveling one day, I suddenly noticed a creature lurking inside the woods. Curious, I went to check and saw a weird creature kneeling and leaning against a pine tree. It was dressed in the most grotesque cloth, head covered with a woman's hand warmer muff that was tied with a cloth, a traditional Russian body warmer hanging from its shoulders. The rest of the clothing was in rags and so torn and see-through that there was no doubt about the owner's gender. Only the tops of his boots survived, and his feet were wrapped in a straw through which I could see his bare toes. This half-human was holding a small crucifix, staring it with his clouded and motionless eyes. I think the movie, right, this shows you that kind of experience when there is no uniform that this man wear, it's just rags, 
misery, and just really the, the only thing on their mind is survival. Wow. Yeah. That, and that hearing that from the other side too, it, it puts that into perspective, like it, where he's saying it's become commonplace. I, I can't imagine what that must have been like. Earlier, we talked about one of the rules that the two duelists have to be of equal rank. And in the movie, they uh, both uh, Fro and Hubert start off as lieutenants, but throughout the movie they get promoted. They, you know, captain, major, colonel, general, enough so. You know, at the same time that they're able to continue these duels over the years. Was it a common occurrence in Napoleon's army for soldiers to rise through the ranks that much, or were the promotions that we see in the movie uh, of, of the two duelists more of an anomaly? No, actually, um, the um, the French army. Because it, it, you know, th- because of the impact of revolution, and this removal of the qualifying restrictions on, for example, let's say, you know, you have to be a noble to advance, or you know, simply giving you the advancement for the, you know, years of service. Because of the restructuring that the French army experienced, you do see a rapid rise through the ranks, especially during the revolutionary period, and then the fact that Napoleonic period had. A significant stretches of, of war, or, you know, 1805, the War of uh, Third Coalition, 1806, 1807, the War of Fourth Coalition. Then you have a uh, start of a six-year-long war in Spain. At the same time, you have a War of Fifth Coalition in 1809. Because of these stretches of, of warfare, you have opportunities to distinguish yourself. And as I mentioned, I mean, uh, DuPont is rising steadily, and both Fournier is, ri- uh, is rising steadily through the rank because they have ample opportunity to distinguish themselves. So you can, in a, in a, in a battle, right, charge with the head of the of, of your unit and earn a promotion to a, a major, and then the next battle, maybe a few months later, right, you do something extraordinary, and again you are recognized for it. And that fluidity and fast track for people who were brave, people who were smart, dedicated, was a hallmark of the French army. So it's not surprising that, you know, the movie shows them advancing through the ranks so quickly. Okay. Yeah, I was curious. I was curious about that because that that did strike me as perhaps it would be a little bit odd to have soldiers rising through the ranks that quickly or or that that much, you know, it'd be like at the end of the war, you're going to end up with everybody being generals. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fortunately, generals die too. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. That's, 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 that's war. Uh, Think about the battle of Borodino in September of 1812 is oftentimes known as the battle of generals because dozens of them are shot, killed, maimed. (laughs) All that is vacancy (laughs) for uh, ambitious, Dedicated, hard, you know, kind of uh, willing uh, officers uh, underneath them. Yeah, I guess I, that does, does bring up a good point of just the warfare being different than, ra- you know, rather than we think, of, you know, these, well, especially these days, even, you know, fighting a lot of wars where you're not, the generals aren't necessarily the boots on the ground. And I think that's actually one of the things is that why the army oftentimes clamors, right, for military kind of service. They, they, they owe more war because at the time of war, and, and that I'm talking about the this early modern kind of period, you see that both in France and Russia, there is eagerness among the military officers to cease war. Uh, I mean, they know it's brutal. They know the, the threat of it, but they also know that it gives them a, a chance, a chance that uh, glory, chance of promotion, a better social standing, and uh, they are eager to seize those opportunities. After Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo in the movie, 
General Fro is one of the Bonapartists who is rested and set to be an example and be executed. Did that sort of thing happen after Napoleon's defeat? Yes, it did. And in fact, uh, historians refer to it as the uh, Second White Terror. Following Napoleon's defeat and the return of the Bourbon dynasty, right, King Louis XVIII is restored on the throne of France, people suspected of having ties with Napoleonic authorities or people associated with revolutionary era all suffered some kind of repercussions, arrests or wars. We know that about 70,000 officials were dismissed from their positions in the aftermath of Waterloo. The army was purged and dozens and dozens of its senior officers were cashiered. More than this, Marshal Michel Ney, the bravest of the brave, the men who in many respects represented you know, the, the French army at the, this kind of it's awesomeness, right? It's the, the man who right, came from Russia, shrouded this aura of bravery and gallantry. Well, he is detained, charged with treason, convicted, and executed, as was General Charles Angelique Houchet de la Bédouille an aide-de-camp to the Emperor Napoleon, who was also, after Waterloo, detained, uh, sent to a hastily convened court-martial, convicted, and shot in August. By the way, Napoleon later on left money to Labedoye's children in his last will. A month later, in September, two brothers, Constantine and César de Fauché, who distinguished themselves during the revolution, earned generals' epaulets fighting the uh, royalists, were also detained, charged with subversion uh, and support for Napoleon, and shot on September 12th. Actually, both of them shot at the same time. Moreover, the royalist crowds were eager to settle scores with the supporters of the previous regime. And there were hundreds of cases of mob lynchings of Napoleonic loyalists. In the south of France, for example, in Marseille, over a dozen of Mamelukes, you know, the soldiers of Napoleon's uh, Mamluk squadron were massacred by the mob. On August 2nd, uh, Marshal of France, uh, Guillaume-Marie-Anne-Brune, was murdered in cold blood in Avignon, and his body was dumped in the Rhone River, though it was later recovered. Two weeks later, General Jean-Pierre Ramel was assassinated in, in broad daylight in Toulouse, with the city's mayor refusing to sanction the investigation of this murder or the prosecution of the men responsible for this vile deed. Overall, therefore, it creates this aura of suspicion and, and sanction of attacking, prosecuting, or doing something against people associated with the Napoleonic era. And especially, right, if we follow this movie's setup, if you are a general who is as pro-Napoleon as Ferro, right, diehard Bonapartist, then you would have been a target right away. It sounds like some of those people were higher level, so it would be uh, using it as, a, as an example. So these characters in the movie, you know, being generals, certainly could be doing it pretty much just to make an example of them. Exactly. I mean, I live in Louisiana, and Louisiana is a good place to talk about this because many of these generals, many of these officers who watched what happened to Ney and Bruin and others packed their things and came to Louisiana. <laughs> If your listeners live in uh, in Alabama or Louisiana, they would actually can travel and see places like Marengo County in Alabama, 
which is named after the Great Battle of Marengo, established by the French officers. Or in Louisiana, they can drive through the city of Gina, Louisiana, although it should be pronounced Yena, also named after the Great Battle of the Napoleon I against the Prussians. So many of these people simply fled and came here and then waited it out. Quite a few of them returned later on in you know 1820s when the things come down. <laughs> Back in the movie, the way that these duels end, there's one final duel between Foro and, and Hubert, and it takes place on Hubert's property. And although the movie doesn't really state a year, we know that it happened after Napoleon's defeat. That would be in 1815, so sometime after that. For this duel, instead of sabers, the men are given two pistols. And we see Foro fires both of his shots probably too too quickly. He fires both of them first. Uh, and then Hubert has one shot left, and he has Foro dead to rights. He can kill him if he wants to, but he doesn't. Instead, he says, we'll simply declare that Foro is dead. Right? Is that how the dueling between these two men really came to an end? At least that's how Colombe, Mil Colombe, described it in his book uh, on how it was perceived by the uh, contemporaries, at least how they believed it happened. And I think what made this duel unique and why I think it also grabbed the attention was that it, it uh, usually the, the, the dueling uh, with pistols was done at a certain interval. Uh, and then the seconds would determine whether it's uh, 12 paces or 25 or 12, right? But it would be two men standing, right, back to back. They will count those paces, turn around, and they will shoot one at a time. Now, the story about this duel, I think, that, you know, why it grabbed it is because it allows these men, supposedly, to scatter in the wood area, right, and hunt each other. So they have to get a primal <laughs> instinct, right, where you're hunting your opponent. For the filmmaking purpose, I think it creates this kind of tension where you don't know what exactly will happen and who will get and how. And, and Faroe, indeed, as you say, right, uh, he rushes, right, he's awesome with a saber. But clearly with a pistol, he's a bit too trigger happy. So he fires both shots uh, and then uh, that gives Uber an opportunity to uh, save his shot. Because by saving this shot, right, he effectively owns Pharaoh's life uh, since he can always right, have that opportunity to shoot him. I love that ending where he comes back home right, and he, he actually tells his wife, yes, it's all over. Pharaoh is essentially dead. And that scene, that scene, the last cut, this the last scene of the movie when Ferrau goes on climbs on top of the mountain. And I'm, I'm being generous to that, let's say a hill, and then looks down this opening vista, and he's wearing this uniform, right, with a uh, gray overcoat and this Napoleonic hat, and he's the Ridley Scott just sets it perfectly. But he zooms out, and it's like Napoleon himself, right? Ferrau has become Napoleon, this downcast kind of tragic figure who stands on the hill and looks down on the valley below. I mean, it's a, I, get, I get goosebumps just talking about it. <laughs> it was a beautiful, yeah, it was a beautiful scene at the, at the end there. To kind of give a, a kind of an overview summary of the duels that we see throughout the movie, it spans like 15 years. First one is in Strasbourg in 1800. Uh, there are two in Augsburg in 1801. And then the next one is in Lubbock in 1806, followed by the one in Russia we talked about in 1812. And then another one in Tours in 1814. 
And then the seventh and final duel that we talked about uh, happening sometime after Napoleon's defeat in Waterloo in 1815. They don't really mention the actual year in the movie. Is that a pretty accurate summary of the duels between these two men over the course of, of the years? If we follow Emile Colombe's timeline, then uh, no, in, in the sense that the timeline should start earlier, right? It's 1794, and then last a bit longer to 1813. We Again, the details are missing, so we don't know exactly how many duels were fought, whether they were indeed fighting in Lubeck in 1806. But if you follow this reasoning, and if you believe that you know they laid down that pact that unless... Uh, their military, you know, military responsibilities aside, they could, they should have no excuse not to fight, and that if they are within ninety miles of each other, the, ninety miles is quite a distance. But if they are within ninety miles, they have to travel half of a distance to meet each other. So if you follow that kind of, we take it at its face value, then I think they would have had ample opportunity to see each other. Except, of course, the problems with, for example. Uh, uh, Dupont's career, right? I think it's more believable if Dupont and Fournier fought each other in reality in earlier years during the Revolutionary Wars, rather than a post-1808 period, because post-1808, Dupont is in prison. And then when he comes out of prison, of course, it, it, he is already on the other side. He's in, in the Bourbon employed. So the timeline-wise, I think we have to shift it to earlier period. And then the number of duels will have to Will you know? Will have to be determined, but clearly the contemporaries, or at least the the generation removed, or we believe that this was indeed uh, what happened. That there was they fought a series of duels. That it lasted a long period of time and uh, long enough to impress the on the contemporaries that this was a unique affair. Overall, how do you feel that the movie did capturing just the essence of the story uh, throughout the entire thing? This is one of my favorite movies, and I love what Ridley Scott did in terms of eye for detail of uniforms, conversation, interaction, by not focusing on a broader picture, by not giving us the charges, you know, like the previous movie that we've discussed, Bondarchuk's right, Waterloo, the mass scenes of ten thousands of right of soldiers. None of that is in this movie. Instead, the story is about this handful of men, Firo and Hubert, their seconds the unique cohesion, right? This, the perception of honor. You get a sense of what it was like on a local level, right? What it was like to be in the unit and be an officer and, and be engaged in these interactions. And I love it. And it is, as I said, one of my favorite movies. Thank you so much for coming on to chat about The Duelist. Your most recent book is called The Napoleonic Wars of Global History, but you've written a number of fantastic books about the Napoleonic era. For someone listening who wants to learn more about that era, can you give an overview of your books and maybe a recommendation for which one to start with? Thank you. You know, I've, I've explored Napoleonic Wars and, uh, and for <laughs> so many years now. One of the books that your listeners might find interesting is the book on the Battle of the Berezina, a very tragic, uh, but a little kind of heroic event that becomes uh, one of the myth kind of, uh, of the Napoleonic Wars. The word Berezina becomes the, associated with a catastrophe, and it's still is oftentimes, you know, sometimes used in the French conversation. But I also have a separate book on the eyewitness accounts of 1814, essentially the last campaign uh, that ends Napoleonic Wars. We're not going to count Waterloo. <laughs> and the reason I'm mentioning this book is because it, in that book, you see what happens at the end of Napoleonic Wars when 
the French are defeated, the Allies are in Paris, and there are so many interactions between the two sides that have been engaged in this, in this protracted conflict with each other. And the contemporary newspapers all talked about constant dueling that was taking place between the two sides. Be, uh, in, in one of the newspaper laments that uh, there are numerous daily in- engagement in Paris, and in one case, this newspaper mentioned that there was a mass showdown of over 100 officers from the uh, uh, French uh, and, and the German sides just slagging it out, right? There's all the frustration and the emotion. <laughs> and I love reading this kind of contemporary accounts and, and sharing it with them. So the, the book, I think, gives you this more of a local flavor and, and a local taste of what it was like to be in 1814, to be in 1812. Can you really call it a duel if there's like hundreds of people? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you you will love this because in the newspaper, and, and uh, it has been pop, uh, publicized in various places, but this one comes from a British newspaper. And what they say is that they say, quote, it was more of an Irish affair than a dueling or national dispute. And by calling it Irish affair, what they call it is stereotypically is this Irish fist kind of right punching. <laughs> so you can see here, even even while talking about it, they can't pass the opportunity to snipe. <laughs> right? <the Irish. laughs> well, thank you again so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, Jim. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Alexander Mika Beridza once again for taking the time to help us separate fact from fiction in 1977's The Duelists. If you want to learn even more about Napoleon, definitely go check out Alexander's body of work. He's got some great books, including the one that he was talking about at the end there, The Battle of the Berezina, Napoleon's Great Escape. As always, you can find links to that book and more of his work in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, there was once a duel where a gentleman shot his adversary for mistaking anchovies for capers. Number two, It was not very common for soldiers to advance through the ranks of Napoleon's army as much as we see happen to the two main characters in the movie. Number three, the primary reason for most duels in the Napoleonic era was to resolve a matter of honor. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's let's count it down and start with number three. The primary reason for most duels in the Napoleonic era was to resolve a matter of honor. That is true. Alexander told us that although these specific reasons may change, generally speaking, the reason for most duels came down to one person resolving a matter of honor against another. That brings us to number two. It was not very common for soldiers to advance through the ranks of Napoleon's army as much as we see happen to the two main characters in the movie. That is the lie. Alexander pointed out that not only did generals die in a lot of battles, that meant they had to be replaced. So the number of battles taking place in Napoleon's campaigns meant there was ample opportunity for soldiers to rise through the ranks. So what we see happen in the movie with the two main characters certainly could have happened. That means number three is also true. There was once a duel where a gentleman shot his adversary for mistaking anchovies for capers. 
As I mentioned just a moment ago, the reasons for the duel can basically be boiled down to a matter of honor, but the specifics of what that honor was could vary quite a bit. Even as Alexander told us one time when someone was shot in a duel for mistaking anchovies for capers. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. My hope in sharing this information is to go beyond just my podcast, but hopefully you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts you listen to for free just a little bit more because they all take a lot of time. Of course, I only have these stats for my own show, though. So with that said, today's episode took a total of 32 hours to create and cost $19.23 in out-of-pocket expenses. Now, as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. In other words, that 32 hours does not include any of my guests' time researching the subject matter we've talked about. It also doesn't include the time that it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not a part of creating this one single episode. For example, the time that it takes to maintain the Base on a True Story website, uh, manage social media, the email newsletter, and all those other little things that go outside creating this one podcast episode, but they're all still things that are required to make a podcast. Similarly, on the expenses side, that $19.23 is just for things specifically for this one episode. It does not include all the podcast-related expenses that go beyond making this one episode. For example, there, the cost of the microphone that I'm talking into right now, the boom arm that it's attached to, the audio interface, the computer, the software, all the podcast and website hosting costs, and on and on, can all add up and cost a great deal of money each month. All those things take time to set up and maintain, and they cost money that go beyond things that are associated with this one episode. But they're all things that are required because if I didn't do those things, there would not be any episodes based on a true story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. And that's why I'm so thankful for the wonderful people who are helping to support this show financially so we can keep it going. So if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get access to over 60 exclusive episodes and ad-free episodes on the producer's feed. Over there, we look at how completely fictional movies deal with history and real life to make them seem a little bit more believable. Most recently, we looked at the 2019 version of Disney's The Lion King and 2008's Iron Man. Plus, as a bonus, all the content on the producer's feed is ad-free. You can find out how to get access to all of that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.